Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 8th, 2017, and my guest is linguist and author John McWhorter of Columbia University. He's the author of many books. Today we'll be talking about Words on the Move, Why English Won't and Can't Sit Still, like literally. John, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. Emergent order is a common topic here at EconTalk, and Thomas Sowell and others, including myself, have used language as an example of emergent order. Language is undoubtedly the product of human action, but not human design. And your book, John, brought that alive for me in an incredibly rich way. So you write, for example, one of the hardest notions for a human being to shake is that a language is something that is when it is actually something always becoming. They tell you a word is a thing when it's actually something going on. Uh, Isn't a word a thing? Explain. Um, What I mean by that is not what many people would think, which is that I'm trying to make some vague appeal to something called the dynamic or that has something to do with the fact that social context is always changing. It's actually more mundane, but in its way, more fascinating than that. And it's simply that sounds in a language are always changing. One sound is always slowly on its way to becoming what will be another sound in the language at some point in the future. And that means that the way a word sounds is always in a process of moving along to something else. And meanings of words are always changing, not just because we invent new things, but just because meanings drift along. Something that only implies the meaning today might actually be the meaning later. So what that means is that while our own sense of the immediate is so immediate, so to speak, such that we think that the language is something that stands still that we're calling upon. And that's an illusion that is encouraged even more by the printed page and dictionaries. The truth is what we're doing is just one snapshot in the whole life of the language. And there's nothing privileged about the one point on the timeline that we happen to be on. So Words on the Move is trying to get across to people the basic fact that a language is like clouds in the sky, always changing. If there is no change, then you know something's wrong. If the clouds aren't moving and they aren't changing shape, then there's something dire going on. And of course, that would never happen. That's not the way precipitation happens over a planet. Same thing with language. So listeners know that I like to talk about how some words catch on and some words die out. Uh, I've often, uh, I've always liked the, the word illimosinary, which Milton Friedman, uh, I've heard, I heard him use it in person. It means charitable. It, it's not used in English other than in a legal context. Uh, so it, it's a word that's dying out. There are words like behooves that are in trouble. You do hear it every once in a while. Uh, ruthless is a word, but Ruth, which used to be a word, isn't. So that kind of thing that words catch on and other words die out. I I was aware of that, but your book just opened my eyes in an incredible way, especially since I have to confess I'm a bit of a language snob. 
<laughs> and I like dictionaries. In fact, I love dictionaries. I love the professor and the madman, Simon Winchester story of the OED, which is an incredible is book. Like- incredible book. But one of the problems he faced, <laughs> which is that it, it, by the time he finished volume A, he was in trouble uh, because the language was was changing. So talk about some of your favorite examples of how words morph in meaning. Well, for example, if you are listening to Shakespeare, if somebody uses the word generous, it can often seem a little strange. And so Edmund in King Lear is defending himself as somebody who shouldn't be looked down upon as lowly born. And at one point he says, well, and I'm generous. And you think to yourself, okay, generous is a good trait. It's a compliment. Yeah, but would you bring that up if what you were talking about is that people should not look at you as lowly born? And it actually made perfect sense in Shakespeare's time. Generous meant noble. So he was saying, I'm noble. Now, if you're noble, especially in earlier contexts, then chances were that part of what you did was give a certain amount of your goods to the surrounding populace as part of basically ruling the roost. And so the idea of a kind of uncalled for generosity attached itself to nobility. And it was just a kind of overtone hanging for a long time. But after a while, generous came to mean to be magnanimous. And so words like that, words change like that all the time. Silly started out meaning blessed. And for those of you who know German, you'll know that there's a word selig in German, which is the same root that silly was. But if you're blessed, then you could be argued to be innocent. And so after a while, it meant innocent. If you're innocent, then one could say that there's a certain weakness about you, that you're not out there being thrasymachus and being strong. And so that means that maybe you're weak. And if you're weak, one kind of being weak would be if you were weak-minded. And so after a while, it means that in written sources. Well, if you're weak-minded, then it could be that you're kind of a, a, a silly billy. And next thing you know, a word that started out having to do with religion was a word that you used for a fool. And what's important to realize is that some words change within a given frame of time more than others, but almost no words stay in the same meaning for hundreds of years. And so the words that we're using are always in a process of moving on to come to mean new things. So let's talk about Shakespeare for a minute uh, because you have many examples of words in Shakespeare that challenge our modern understanding because they're they're words that we still use. They just don't mean what they meant in Shakespeare's time. And you actually suggest the possibility, and I'm not only a language snob but a purist. You actually mm-hmm. – so I was offended uh, initially by the idea but then kind of enchanted by the idea that we could reword Shakespeare taking the words that have changed radically and substitute words for them. Uh, and um, make them more Shakespeare more understandable to a modern audience. Want to defend that seemingly uh, <laughs> blasphemous uh, claim? Yeah, that makes a lot of people very upset. Yeah. <laughs> because the words that Shakespeare uses are, for the most part, words that we use, and so we think, well, he's using English. So the idea tends to be that Shakespeare's language may be challenging, but it's because you have to rise to the occasion that the language is complex, it's or poetry, that it's poetic, yeah, syntax is a little people, different. Yeah, you have to learn the syntax, and there's an idea that the British are better trained to get it across, which is not true in my experience, but people say that. But what it really is, 
is that a whole lot of the words Shakespeare uses have changed so much in their meaning that today we can't understand them when spoken live. And this is what's important. Many people seem to think that I mean that if you're sitting there reading it, that you should have some sort of translation like the, you know, fear not Shakespeare that's on, no fear Shakespeare that's online. I don't mean that. When you're reading, you can go slowly, you can deliberate, you have time to look at the footnotes. But let's face it, what Shakespeare was expecting us to do was to experience the plays delivered on stage in real time. You don't have time to look anything up. And the truth is that much of why Shakespearean language can be so hard to process is because we have no way of knowing what the words mean and we can't look it up when we're sitting in the theater. And I, I mean things such as generous meaning noble or a haggard meaning falcon. Or when somebody says wit in Shakespeare, usually what he means is knowledge. He doesn't mean fizzy humor. And you multiply that by, you know, by a large number, such that something like that is coming at you maybe once every five or six lines. That is why Shakespeare can be so difficult. And so I say that after this many centuries, there's an argument that there be two versions of each, each Shakespeare play. You can have the original for those who desire the original and optimally for those who have read it beforehand and can actually take it in as a serious piece of theater instead of as a kind of spectacle of poetry, which is not what Shakespeare meant. Then there should be another version where only the words that we can no longer understand without scratching our heads and doing some philology, are replaced by some word optimally with the same rhythm. This has been quietly done. Um, there are, to my knowledge, two versions of Macbeth that work like this. And the result is that it isn't pure Shakespeare, but it's still got the crazy syntax, it's still got the poetic diction, but words aren't used in ways that somebody in our times has no way of understanding. And that makes for a much richer experience. And to tell you the truth, Russ, I firmly believe that if Shakespeare were with us today and we asked him whether or not he would prefer that we do that instead of having the plays be what he wrote, if he understood how language changes, I'm sure he would say, oh yeah, go ahead, fiddle with it because I want people to understand what I said, not to think of it as just poetry washing over their heads. So that's the case that I make. Well, your, your book... Um we're going to get to some of the other uh, places where you open my mind, but this would be one of them because, I mean, I really, if you had said that to me, that paragraph just now, I would have been horrified. <laughs> I would have said that is the, <laughs> that's the worst idea I've ever heard. It's offensive even. But it, it being open to the other points you made made me be more open to this one. And I thought about it. I thought, you know, if Shakespeare peppered his uh, plays with Italian because, let's say, mm -hmm. his audience knew Italian, we would mm -hmm. think nothing in fact, we would encourage those words to be translated uh, artfully, of course. You wouldn't just <clears throat> look up a – we wouldn't use a robot, an artificial intelligence program, a Google Translate, say, to render Shakespeare's words into modern English. And again, as you mm -hmm. point out, we're not putting Shakespeare's play into modern English. We're putting some of Shakespeare's words into exactly. modern English. And we'd want another poet or a thoughtful person to do that artfully – but Definitely. we wouldn't think anything about <clears> – <throat> most of us don't think anything about reading books in translation. We don't say, well, that's not what uh, Dante mm -hmm. wrote and that's not what Tolstoy wrote. Although there are, mm -hmm. of course, snobs who would say you can't read a book in translation. It's immoral. But I'm, right. not, I'm not one of those, so I need to concede right. that you're probably right about Shakespeare. Uh, I had to ask you that. I have to ask you. I was thinking about this as reading your, your argument. When you are listening to a Shakespeare play or watching a Shakespeare play, 
Mm-hmm. Are you processing it the way you would an Italian speaker watching an Italian play? Excuse me. <laughs> you know what I mean. Is it easy for yeah. you? It's hard for me. I, I, lo- I love right. Shakespeare live, but is it right. easy for no. you or easier? No, it's not. It's not easier, and that's why I've gotten on a soapbox about this because you know I, frankly, am a theater person in general. I'm also the kind of linguist whose specialty is studying earlier forms of language, and so I would call myself fairly well informed about earlier stages of English, especially you know in Shakespeare's time, which wasn't all that long ago. And yet, I remember when I was in college and grad school, I would um, go to Shakespeare productions, and okay, these people were not trained at the Old Vic, but they were doing their best. And I remember seeing productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and All's Well That Ends Well in The Tempest, where I frankly might as well have been at an Italian play. You know, my Italian isn't bad. And my friends would say, oh, no, I got all of it. It was wonderful. I mean, you don't get everything, but oh, yeah, I I got it because they're good actors. It was wonderful. And I started thinking to myself, you're lying, especially with The (laughs) Tempest. I thought, no, if my friends with The Tempest were engineers, I thought if I didn't get this, you didn't either. And so, no, I don't go unless I've read it. Or if I go to a Shakespeare play and I haven't read it within the past couple of years, I just assume that I am going to be attending something in Italian and that the costumes better be good. But is it easier now than when you were younger because you know more of those words or is it your brain still struggle to process them in real time? No, I would have to have still gone through the play and gotten a sense of when the words were coming in order to genuinely enjoy it as a play now maybe um if i don't do that there are things that i could enjoy but i always know that even often when i'm thinking i'm understanding if i haven't gone through it i'm not really and often the actor's expressions and various other random things can make something enjoyable and it can connect to you but i'm always thinking to myself i haven't had a chance to go through this text it's not in the english that i speak and so i'm missing a whole lot and i know that for many people that's enough But I don't think that's what Shakespeare meant. And I think you and I both know that Shakespeare's better when you genuinely understand what they're saying up there. It's just how you go about understanding. Totally agree. Uh, You're you're winning me over. It's hard for me to concede it, but I I will concede that it's alive. (laughs) Your case is alive. Um, One of the favorite things um, you talk about, one of my favorite things in the book is your insights into how words – often convey emotion rather than what we would call meaning or a dictionary meaning. And beautiful example is, is the phrase, horses run fast. We understand all three of those words pretty well. But in the sentence, well, horses run fast. That sentence, the word well, doesn't mean a place that holds water. It doesn't mean good. It means something very strange. Talk about that. Um, There are words in a language that don't mean anything in the way that we naturally think that words mean something. And in Words on the Move, I devote a chapter to that wing of what language is because so often – If we have reason to zero in on those words, we think that there's something wrong with them because they don't, quote unquote, mean anything. When really there's a whole magic layer of language that traditional ways of teaching grammar tend to ignore. And therefore, we don't think of it as real language. But well is one of those things. If somebody says, well, horses run fast, that means 
I acknowledge that you were talking about some other animal running fast or some other phenomenon, which I have to gently contradict or add to in a way that makes what you said seem incomplete by saying horses run fast. All of that is contained within that little word. And so if somebody asks you, what does well mean? And you go past you know, the thing that water's in or doing something in a good way, you realize that well doesn't have a meaning. It has a function. It's part of having a civilized conversation. So many of the words we use are of that kind. And they make a lot more sense when you realize that there's a certain collection of words, there's a certain collection of expressions, there are certain collection, there's a certain collection of intonations that don't mean anything. They do something. They're part of managing the traffic of conversation. Linguists call this pragmatics. That's one of those clumsy in-house terms that is hard for even junior linguists to wrap their heads around. And so I try not to use it. It's the difference between semantics, which is meaning, and pragmatics, which does something. But that jargon term is less important than realizing that words like well or the like that young, or I should say today, younger people are using so much, the literally meaning that drives people so crazy, all of those are doing something rather than meaning something. Talk about like, because uh, because that's a, a phrase that, again, is a, is a snob and a purist, dri- dri- used to drive me crazy, but you kind of opened my mind on that one too. Um, what's it doing? What's its purpose? Well, you know, like is so complicated that there is a whole book that's come out that's mainly written for linguists but comprehensible to everybody else by Alexandra Darcy, who is a wonderful linguist in um, British Columbia. But like is a whole lot of things and only one of them is hedging. So we listen to people saying like and we think that they're saying, well, something is like something rather than being itself. And it seems irritating because we wonder why people won't just you know, stand stand with their feet on the floor and make the statement. But that is one thing that like means. And you could think of it less as a matter of hedging than as a kind of politeness that you don't want to stomp on, on people's faces and assert exactly what you think. But then like can mean all sorts of other things. It's actually useful for emphasizing things, depending on how exactly you use it in the sentence. It can be used to indicate that you know what's going on in someone else's head and you acknowledge it, but you're saying something else, something that's rather related to the well. And the truth is this, like exists in the real world and all of us have a certain core sense of like as meaning similar to, and that's not gonna change. And what that means is that people who are given to using like every six words, and there really are such people, and these days they're not 17. I've heard this in people 45. It's been around a while. People who are given to doing that should be told that if they want to be taken seriously, they should cut way back on the likes in public speech or in any kind of speech where they're hoping to have an effect to be heard as authoritative. Now, how they talk in their kitchen how they talk in their car, how they talk at a party, even if they're wearing a nice pair of pants or a nice dress, that really doesn't matter. But like cannot help but sound a little sweat sock. And so people should realize that language is always changing. There's no such thing as language that's inherently bad or illogical, but there will always be some language that works better in formal contexts than informal contexts. 
So the transcript of this, the highlights that we put out after every episode, will reveal that earlier <laughs> in this conversation, you slipped in a you know. Well, of uh, course. Now, talk about you know, which is a, you know, which is a version of like to me. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of a typology of these pragmatic markers. And you know is one of the ones that's an acknowledgement marker. So part of having a civil conversation, and not civilized, but I mean among any human beings in any context, civil conversation, is that you're regularly checking to see that the other person is with you. The way that you do it is not to stop in the middle of what you're saying and say, do you understand and sympathize with what I mean? The way you do it is you say, you know, so you're kind of opening up their brain for a second and looking to make sure that they're with you. So that's what you know means. It's not an actual question. It's a way of maintaining connection. So that's an acknowledgement marker. Another acknowledgement marker, these things take all sorts of forms, is and stuff, or frankly, what people probably say more often, although I'm not going to use the word. That and blank expression means, well, then they got married and stuff. Well, the and stuff is all the things that you and the person you're talking to associate with marriage, be that you know, rice or getting your own house or boredom or whatever it is, the and stuff. When you say the and stuff or the and other thing, what you're doing is you are indicating that you and the other person are on the same page. It's a function. All languages have those acknowledgement markers. They take many forms, but no language doesn't have it. You know is probably the most prominent of ours in English. So how is your Yiddish? Um, I can read a little of it, but pretty pretty awful. So <laughs> There's a word in Yiddish, uh, which I'm sure you know, which is new, which is spelled in English N-U, question mark. It yep. almost always has a question mark, but not always. And yep. it's always Yiddish speakers or people like myself who are, have a cultural Yiddish flavor experience, know somebody who speaks Yiddish or loves Yiddish. Uh, we always like to say, oh, that word's untranslatable. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons it's untranslatable is that it has multiple meanings and depending on context. But I realized because of your pragmatics discussion, the other reason it's untranslatable is it, it does a lot of things that's, that are not definitional, that aren't things you could look up. They can, it conveys emotion. It conveys sympathy. It conveys skepticism. And that's yeah. why it's untranslatable, not because, oh, it means whatever you want or it depends on the context. It's an emotion word. Oh, yeah, definitely. New is one of these pragmatic markers. And so when somebody says, so I came home and everything's okay. So new, when that person says new, they are looking into your soul. What that means is we're on the same page, right? You understand, right? And that subsumes a lot of the ways that a person speaking Yiddish or Yiddish inflected English would use new. And so it's your first clue when there's one of those words where somebody says, oh, it has no meaning. That means that, yeah, it doesn't have a meaning. It has a function. It's going to be one of these pragmatic markers. So when someone comes back from, a, say, a meeting where something important was riding on the meeting, a promotion or a deal or whatever, and that person comes, comes to me and I say uh, – and they don't tell me about the meeting and I say, no, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean what happened at the meeting. Well, it does, but what it really means is – Aren't you going to tell me about what happened at the meeting? And that sentence, actually, you use an example of it in your book, that question is not really a question. Aren't you going to tell me what happened at the meeting? Because the answer to that is probably, yeah, I am. 
It's really, why aren't you going to tell me and why haven't you told me already? And I'm a little bit surprised. <laughs> that, and it also connotes that what you're going to tell the person about the meeting is something that the other person is going to find interesting. Correct. So you're not going to talk about what food was served. There's kind of a mutual understanding between you that what you want to know is what Morris Schenkman finally said or something like that. That's right. And so, yeah, all of that is conveyed. Those are people opening up the doors of their minds to each other. So I'm going to read a, a, a longish uh, paragraph in the book, which, which I loved, because I've thought about this myself. Um, but you really say it well. You say, if fast means speedy, then why can you hold fast and be fast asleep? And did it ever bother you? Dusting can be removing something like dust or laying it down like fertilizer or paprika. No T-shirts about that. You seed a watermelon to get the seeds out, but when you seed the soil, you're putting the seeds in. You can bolt from a room running fast in which the chairs are bolted to the floor, stuck fast. Examples go on and on, and notice they matter not a jot. They're called contronyms, and the only reason nobody goes around with a shirt reading against the misuse of fast to mean rapid, I sit steadfast, is that the bifurcation happened before there were people thinking of English words as held fast in dictionaries. The question is, do contronyms actually create ambiguity, or are they construed as possibly creating ambiguity via willful overanalysis? So talk about contronyms. Well, contronyms are interesting first because it shows how much context matters in how we speak. And so you'd think that fast would be very confusing because the first meaning we think of is probably Bugs Bunny running. But then it also means hold fast or fast asleep. It means being perfectly still. And yet none of us would ever think of that until somebody strange like me pointed it out. It doesn't give us any trouble. The reason that contronyms are interesting other than just giving a list, and I really think that giving lists is uh, the last resort <laughs> of the teacher. The point of the list is that literally is a contronym, and people are very upset about it. So literally can actually mean by the letter, but then literally can also mean figuratively, as in I was literally boiling up, I was so hot. And people say, well, it isn't correct that you can use that word to mean both itself and its opposite. But then again, nobody's ever complained about the other ones. Literally gets picked on just because by chance certain people, and we'll never know exactly who the ones who originated this were, started complaining about literally at a certain time and it caught on. In the book, I analogize it, I think, to that kid in sixth grade who everybody picks on for no particular reason when you look back on it and really it could have been somebody else. And it's just because people can be mean. And so this one kid has to suffer all year. Literally is that kid. Yeah, so I'm one of those people who am, I'm very uncomfortable saying very unique because things mm -hmm. are either one of a kind, which is what unique I think literally means. Mm -hmm. And yet everyone says very unique except me and a few other snobs. And I'm starting to think I've got it wrong after reading your book. <laughs> um, uh, hopefully is another one of those words that snobs like to say people misuse. Uh, there are many, many such words, and yet you make the case that uh, if you're going to complain about very unique or hopefully or uh, whatever, which is another word that mm -hmm. covers a lot of ground, uh, you have to stop using the word merry to mean happy. Uh, words are always changing their meaning, and contronyms are just an extreme example. Yeah, it's interesting, these cases. It's, for example, very unique. 
I completely understand the logic behind someone who says, but unique can't be very because <laughs> unique is the superlative in itself. That's true. That's the way it was once. But I think as you're catching on to, unique is drifting into meaning unusual. And therefore, people tend to process it as being able to take a very. And it's hard to deal with these things in real life. But we have to because it's just like I forget whether I use an anecdote in that book about my sister started dating. And it felt really weird to see her with men because I'm a man and I know what you know I did with people who I dated. But I thought, you know, if people didn't start dating, then what kind of lives would they, they be leading? And frankly, none of us would be here. That's the same thing with all of these words. What we're speaking now came from the exact same processes that feel so funny to us today. And so hopefully she'll come and you say, well, you don't mean that she's going to come with hope in her eyes. But there's so very many adverbs that are exactly like that. And you can be pretty sure that nobody was ever told, you don't mean that you are thinking this in an actual way when you say, I really think this. It's just that there's certain kind of adverbs that end up taking on different functions than what their actual literal core original meanings were. And that's how you get a language. And so, uh, so very many of the things that we're told to attend to, which if you're a certain kind of language-headed person, you enjoy learning the strunk and white sorts of things, the blackboard grammar. I like strunk and white. Yeah, <laughs> and I, it's hard not to like it. <laughs> Almost all of that stuff are things that somebody made up usually about 250 years ago, because they didn't know as much about languages as we do now, and they had a notion that all languages should work like Latin. And that is so hard to accept in a way, because we're proud that we learned all those rules. And it's a way of feeling like you're wearing the right clothes. It's a way of feeling intelligent. But you know, most of that stuff was just made up. Now, Russ, this is the point. With most of those things, once again, we live in a society. So, for example, you cannot say Billy and me went to the store and be taken seriously in many public settings. So everybody has to learn that there are times when you have to say Billy and I went to the store. But that does not belie the simple fact that that whole rule was something somebody made up who didn't know how English worked. So that's a point I actually don't stress that much in Words on the Move as opposed to other books, but it is definitely true. Yeah, I was going to bring that one up actually because there's a set of things that my children – we're pretty articulate, uh, struggle with. Uh, Billy and me is one of them. Uh, they also struggle with the difference between less and fewer. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I correct them, and I keep correcting mm-hmm. them. They're teenagers and in their 20s now, and I'm starting to think, you know, it's not working. Uh, and I, <laughs> is that a result of their brains? I, I, is it because their friends use it more often than they hear me use it? Than, yeah. Then you talk the I way use it, you me hear. use it, I've already said I'm in trouble myself. I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> then I use it. You talk based on the language that you hear around you. And to be a speaker of modern English, an educated speaker of modern English, is to know that a great many of the things that you feel most comfortable saying are considered wrong by certain First of all, people in school and then some people like maybe one of your parents, maybe both of your parents, people who seem rather uniquely concerned with such things. But yes, given that people all around them are always saying we're going to have less books this year, they're going to say less books. You can teach them that fewer books is what you want to say in a formal context. But I hate to say that 
there really are no logical grounds for the idea that fewer books is proper and logical while less books is somehow broken. It's just something somebody made up because that's the way they liked it. And we might like it too. You know, I frankly always liked shag carpeting. I wish it hadn't gone out. I enjoyed how it felt. I liked how it smelled. You're not so, a you man, know, John. <laughs> there are other people like that. But it's not a matter of logic. And I know how odd it seems to hear that. But it's just it's just true. It's simple truth. So this example we were on a minute ago, contronyms, uh, really drove home a point you make elsewhere in the book. I don't know if you make it with respect to contronyms. But we're always looking for ways to make language more vivid. And I've noticed this, again, after reading your book, in my own email habits, I find myself using exclamation points. I think if you went back to my uh, emails of, uh, say, 2000-ish, I don't think I ever used an exclamation point. I now use it to convey an emotional, uh, a bunch of emotional things. It it doesn't just convey enthusiasm. It conveys lots of things. And you give give other examples where uh, language evolves in order to convey that vividness. And I don't know if this is accurate. You can tell me, but it seems to me that's a lot of what contronyms are doing. So you give the example of how awesome and awful are this very similar, and yet they mean mm-hmm. opposites. It seems right. to me contronyms to some extent are a way to – in other words, I, this, this thing is so much this thing, I'm going to use the opposite right. to convey it. Right. Yeah, that's part of a larger a larger issue, which is that in a language, you're always seeking something that you can convey really red hot enthusiasm with. And red hot enthusiasm tends to cool. The novelty of the term tends to cool. And so you have these rolling words that fulfill that function. One way that you can do it is the shock value of using what's conventionally thought of as a pejorative word to mean something positive. And yes, that's happened many times. The example that's brought up so much now that I think it's boring is the use of bad as good, which starts in the black community and then spreads somewhat. But then there's wicked, which I remember hearing people saying, particularly starting in the late 70s in the Northeast, at least that's where I heard it. Today, it's sick. And so what the kids are saying is that something is sick. It's that same process. And so, yeah, you can create a contronym Because if you create one out of whole cloth all of a sudden, then there's a certain drama in it. So to say, to use revolting to mean that something is great, and you can imagine an alternate universe that could happen, that that sticks out because whatever 10 years ago's version of that was is starting to wear out. Fierce had a fiercer meaning 20 years ago than it does now even among young people. You need to keep replacing those words. So when I think about and I just started that sentence with so, which is something that listeners know that I do a lot, and I uh, didn't realize it until fairly recently. And in your book, you explain how so is a pragmatic word that conveys I'm changing the subject. <laughs> uh, exactly. May I? And and it's my sort of tip of the hat to you to say, uh, I hope you recognize this. Uh, so when I talk about language as an example of emergent order, I often point out that unlike say, the market for bread. In the market for bread, there's these feedback loops of profit and loss, prices going up and down that send signals to people. And in language, those signals are very, very muted. You don't get any profit 
from coining a new word. You might. If you use a word before it, you might seem hip or cool. Uh, and it'd be fun to think of how many words uh, hip and cool can be, uh, or synonyms for those words. But um, you get some hipness factor when you use a word like six, say, early on, and, and you show that you're in the know. But the feedback loops for English, to make it more effective, say, aren't there the way they are to make, say, the process of um, creating a silicon chip uh, profits the people who make it more more effective and more productive. So, yeah. so English doesn't evolve in a particularly useful uh, – or not useful is not the right word, but it evolves in a very different way than lots of other parts of human interaction that I would call emergent. But there's one place where it's, it's very – um, where this is a little bit different, and that's suffixes. So suffixes are cases I learned from your book where, like such as the past tense, where <laughs> a, two words get mushed together or the word like at the end of the word to mean similar to, and then the K-E drops off and you get the L-Y. And so there's a process in English, and I assume other languages, to make them shorter because shorter is better. It's quicker. It's easier. It doesn't take as long. Um, talk about how that works and the limits to that because obviously you can't just have everybody using the word A to mean whatever the context uh, suggests it is. Um, yeah. Um, there is that a long is... enough complicated question for you? No, that's, that's <laughs> perfectly fine. Language is two processes that end up working in a complementary way. And so definitely there is a drive towards economy. Language is spoken very quickly. There's a tendency for words that are used together a lot to come together and often become one word. And so, for example, slow like becomes slowly after a while. And so certainly that's there. Now, you could say, and I know that we seek analogies between language development and economics here. But you could say that the shortness just kind of comes for free, that it's because you're talking quickly and so you have the habit of drawing things together. The idea that you're seeking the economy, some people would agree with that, some people wouldn't, but more to the point is that if a language kept doing that, then after a while you would start to suspect there was some sort of problem with comprehension because if things are too short and too elided, then it interferes with comprehension. So for one thing, comprehension must be able to receive the signal. And also, things like like becoming Lee are happening all the time. And so new things are being brought into the language that aren't as short yet at all times. And so it's this kind of churning process. So for example, slowly. But we're using like like that again, and you can say slow like even now, which if you think about it, is different in its meaning from slowly. Slowly and slow like are you know, differ with a nuance that only a native English speaker could understand. But slow like is basically trying to do that again. So language gets shorter, language becomes more economical, but there are limits on it because if it were too economical, nobody could understand it. And there's always new material being brought in to be fed back into the maw of this sort of boiling down. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that people are sitting around thinking, how can I make English more efficient? The way of, oh, say, an, ent right, the way an entrepreneur might uh, try to improve a process. But what is similar, I think, is the idea that if I enter a new field in, in business, say, or some industrial process, 
I kind of, kind of, there's one of those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've made me very sensitive. I'm really enjoying it. I'm, and, and listening. <laughs> easing word, as I say in the book. Yep, yeah, and it really is. Um, so when you enter a new field uh, or a new area, there's a certain set of received things that you have to provide or you're just not going to, you're going to succeed. And so uh, what I love, for example, about about Uber is that when I get into an Uber, I'm often offered a, a thing of water or a charger for my iPhone. That's just sort of standard. I, it, now, I don't think people t- sit around drivers and think, I wonder what I can offer. It's just that, well, that's sort of standard. And, and it, you know that if you want to compete and be successful and get your five stars, you have to, there's a certain minimum level of, of uh, customer service you have to offer. And I think similarly in English, uh, if something is short and convenient, useful, you just start using it. You don't say, think, oh, this will be good. I won't have to talk as long. Um, right. So as you point out, though, the the you lose some richness when you do that. And so there is that constant tendency to add back in longer phrases. It's just a beautiful example of, of dynamism and, and evolution. I just – it's really – it's it moves me, which is um... I know it. I know what you mean, and it's that sort of thing that I'm trying to get across to readers because I think that that is what language is really about. And instead, we're taught to hang up on things like whether people are using a certain word wrong, or whether people are getting some new word from this place as opposed to that place. When really, there's so much beauty that's going on in terms of how this thing is changing, right? before our very ears. We can miss so much, and it's because linguists have not done enough to try to teach the public about these things until relatively recently. Linguists complain, oh, the general public just doesn't understand. And once I was a grad student, I started thinking, well, part of the reason is how would they know if we only write write about these things in ways that only we can understand? And I think that's changing, but I'm glad that you get that there's something gorgeous going on rather than just that your kids are saying less books instead of fewer books. Yeah, your ling- uh, linguistics is the only field with this problem. So you really should uh, work hard <laughs> on trying to make it better. Every field, you know, has this problem. Uh, oh yeah. And and of of course, the to me, the saddest part of this, just to get on a uh, soapbox that I like to climb on occasionally, the the temptation to teach undergraduates the dumbed down version of the graduate class rather mm-hmm. than the one time you have to inspire them to go through life to be aware of something beautiful, something that will make them not richer in monetary mm-hmm. terms, but richer in living terms, is missed because they teach as if they were talking to somebody who might go to graduate school, which will be one or two people in that class. Uh, the rest of them are going to get very little out of it except a grade, and that's a shame. Uh, you talked – you mentioned about words combining uh, – the incredible examples you give in the book, which just, again, grabbed me so much, are words like breakfast, uh, words like blackboard, which used to be two words. They become one word, and if, even when they stay two words, there's this phenomenon you point out called the backshift. Uh, talk about the backshift, which is one of the coolest things uh, I've read about in a long time. <laughs> yeah, the backshift is a lot of fun. Basically, when you put – Two words together, if you're talking about, say, a board that's black, first you're going to say, well, that's a black board. But suppose there's a particular kind of board that's black that is very specific, it has a very particular function, it becomes what we call a thing 
in society. Suppose you have, for example, the board that's black that you hang on the wall and you write on with chalk. Well, if you're going to say black board enough because it's something that's so well established, then the accent shifts to the first one instead of the second one. And so you say a blackboard. Notice that you would never say, go write that up on the blackboard. Or you imagine somebody writing it on a wooden plank that's painted black. It's the blackboard. And that shift backwards, which I called the back shift, that is not a, an official linguistics term, but I almost wish that well, linguists would start it using it. It may catch on. It may. I <laughs> hope so. The back shift means that something has become a thing. And you can hear that going on even in our own lives. When something becomes an established concept, and if it's made up of two or more words, then you very often have that shift to the shift to the back of the word. So, for example, if we are in a society where there is this new organization that dresses boys up as scouts and has them do various activities, you're at first going to call that, oh, it's the boys scouts. But if you say that enough, you're going to call it the Boy Scouts. That's why we say that, whereas you can hear a vaudevillian in a 1930s movie like Eddie Cantor calling them the Boy Scouts or talking about eating a hot dog rather than a hot dog. And what's fun about that backshift is that after a while, when the sounds start mushing around, you can lose what the original two words were. So, for example, what's above my eyebrows to me is not my it's certainly not my forehead and it's not my forehead it's my forehead that's the way i say it so you wouldn't even know or also cupboard we all know what a cupboard is but it should be spelled c-u-b-b-e-r-d the idea that it's actually a cupboard is something you learn when you learn how to read and to write i'm not sure i knew that a cupboard was a cupboard until i was maybe eight or nine because the word isn't used much in the philadelphia dialect region that we use cabinet instead so cupboard you hear people say it i didn't know that it was a board for cups especially because it isn't too much time has passed so yeah the back shift is a kind of language change that you can hear going on in our lives this is my favorite example which i didn't use in the book listen to early npr interviews about the internet. If you go way back into the 80s, you can hear people referring to their websites. Oh, I have a website. Today we say website because it is the very center of our existence. So it's happening all the time. It's called the backshift. And I urge your listeners to call it that and to spread the word because we need to know about the backshift as much as we need to know that a noun is a person, place, or thing. So one of my children, uh, I mentioned this, the backshift at the dinner table the other night uh, in prepping for this, um, not prepping, in, in sharing my excitement <laughs> of reading your book. I can't, I, I don't use my children to prep for episodes. Uh, but one of them said, it's always bothered him and his friend that it's paperclip, but it's paper towel. So paper towel is a, is a, a, a compound phrase, a two-word thing, that where the backshift just didn't seem to happen. What, what's going on there? You know, it's one of those things where there's a certain amount of chance. There are some cases where the backshift just has not happened, where it's difficult to say why not. And so, for example, Broad Street, you would never say the Broad Street, Broadway, whereas it used to be called the Broadway. But Henny Lane, and it's not because of the Beatles, Allen's Lane, um, Marion Lane. You would never say Penny Lane, Marion Lane. It's hard to say exactly why Lane 
is immune. Paper towel is interesting because it's toilet tissue, whereas you can be quite sure that it used to be toilet tissue, just like it used to be French fry or paper clip, certainly safety pin, but then it's a paper towel and that just sticks. You know something, Russ, I've never thought about that, but I'll just bet you, and you're going to maybe hear from listeners, that there are people who say paper towel. I'm sure that there's some people who do say it, but why there aren't more, I really could not say. It might be because towels themselves that you dry yourself with are such a prominent part of existence that you do feel like you're saying a paper towel, a paper towel. But see, I'm just I'm just guessing yeah. because there are exceptions to that. I never thought about it. And it's one of those things where to sound sophisticated, linguists in the old days used to say, well, all languages leak. So I'm <laughs> going to have to say that. That's safe. Uh, have you seen My Fair Lady, the movie or the or the show? I have. Do you like it or do you hate it? Um, I like it because I am one of the world's biggest straight musical theater fans. But I am also, it's one of those things where it gives unrealistic expectations in that you could not change somebody's speech to that degree and or that quickly. And I think that that whole scenario makes it sound like people can change their accents more quickly and more easily than they can. Whereas in real life, to do it that completely, especially in our very informal age, is difficult. Now, of course, Higgins's idea that people make one another, other people despise them because of the nature of their accent is definitely true. And his notion that you could solve that problem by just make making people use a classier accent is logically true. But of course, there's a classism that's caught up in the way that he's thinking of these things. He naturally assumes also that certain forms of speech are inherently better. And so you don't want to be too literal about these things, but to say, ow, and gone, or what put her in her place, as if ow, and gone are all that Cockney English is. So it's a wonderful (laughs) confection. I wish I could play Henry Higgins one day, but I get the feeling I'll never be allowed to. But no, there are certain assumptions in it that I think distract people from the reality of language. I played it in the eighth grade, actually, uh, with with oh, you uh, got to do it. in Miss Kinnean's class. Yes, and I've mentioned Miss Kinnean before. God bless her, and that's one of the things I'm very grateful for because I love that show, and uh, I love I just like the show generally. And and I, I but I'm curious. The other part of it that I that I was interested in hearing from you is whether the ability Higgins's ability to say. I would call it a parlor trick, identify where people grew up or you know, that they spent uh, yeah. six weeks in in the Great Lakes when, they, you know, <laughs> when their parents were whatever. Is that plausible or is that just for show? Well, you know, it's easier in some ways in some parts of England because English has been there for, depending on how you count it, 2,000 years. And it has developed into a great many very different varieties. There are Englishes that are more different from one another there than pretty much any English that you hear as an American, unless you happen to hear the Gala Creole of the Sea Islands or the Hawaiian pigeon, which is actually not a pigeon, but a full language in Hawaii. So there's an extent to which if you're familiar with all of the different varieties of English, you could place somebody within a region because there's such stark differences. Here in the United States, that can be harder 
because those dialects all came here and just mixed and they haven't had a chance to become as divergent because that kind of divergence takes time. And here we've only had a few hundred years, but there are, you know, there's that beautiful test that went around online a few years ago. There are certain traits of American English where if a person has a certain cluster of them, it's almost certain that they grew up in a certain place and not that their parents were from it, but that they grew up in it. Could there be an American Henry Higgins? Yes, but the features would be a lot less dramatic and a lot less harder to make theatrically interesting than in England. However, could anybody be as good as Higgins was? No, I mean, that's that's good show, but humanity is too variegated for it to be a matter of you having spent six weeks in a certain place or getting you down to the city block, no. But what somebody like him really could and can do is impressive enough. So I just heard you say harder in a way that I would not have said it. I would say harder. Uh, right. Is that – well, two questions. Does that speak to where you grew up? And secondly, in your casual conversations with people, are you constantly hearing those differences and processing, oh, that's an interesting pronunciation, that word's drifting and how it's pronounced and – um, my R has occasioned a lot of um, comment from people when I've been doing my podcast at Slate. I had never thought about it before. And, you know, I'm not sure. I know that there's some people who would say that it had something to do with me growing up in Philadelphia in the 1970s and 80s, but I'm not sure that I can link it to that. It might be just a weirdness about me. We've all got our, our weirdnesses. I definitely have water which is something that places me immediately in Philadelphia and the surrounding area, if not Baltimore, and other subtler sorts of things. But the R, I think that's just something weird about me. As to whether I'm always listening, definitely. And I'm never listening for, oh, that person sounds terrible. But yeah, I'm listening for pronunciations. I'm listening for new ways of using grammar just because it, it's interesting to listen to people. And I find myself thinking so many people are trained to listen to people waiting for something called a mistake, whereas I'm always listening to people and thinking, what's going to be the news? What are they going to say that sounds a little odd to me that almost certainly will mean that the language is changing in some new way that nobody was thinking about 10 years ago? Words on the Move is about how language and modern English in particular is supposed to be fun. Yeah, no, it's, it is fun. Uh, how many languages can you read? I can read about 12. And how many can you speak? Um, these days, I don't like to say that I can speak any language but English in the way that I would like to because time passes. I've got kids. I don't get to travel as much. And if you don't use a language, you lose it. If I have to, such as in an academic setting in Europe, I can speak French and Spanish well enough that nobody's going to smack me in the face. I can get along. But – it's at the point where I'm not as comfortable as I used to be. My German was never quite that good, but even today I can go to Germany and, as they say, get around and then some. I understand most of what I'm hearing, but I've lost my ability to produce on anything like a respectable level. I can speak Russian like a chimpanzee. Um, I can. Is that good or bad? That, that's bad. No, okay. my, my spoken word is horrible. <laughs> and I'm trying to teach myself Mandarin, and I want to get to the point where I can talk like roughly a six-year-old. That's about as, as good as I can imagine getting. Reading, I retain, and I have to do it a lot. Speaking, use it or lose it. And in my life, even in New York City, I'm losing it. So you refer to a lot of different languages in the book. It's really fun. Uh, 
I took 10 years of uh, French, third through 12th grade, and learned virtually nothing uh, except a few <laughs> decent structure sort of things that helped me recognize some English words. But I, I can – if I if I went to France, I'd speak I'd speak it more quickly than if I went to China. Um, yeah. I go to Israel, and and my Hebrew is very mediocre. But one of the things, and I bring that up because uh, Hebrew generally has no pronouns. There are pronouns literally, but when you speak in Hebrew, if you say uh, "I went to the store," you would say "went to the store" in Hebrew. You'd never say "I went to the store." Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has the strange practice that. In printed Hebrew, there are no vowels, which is right. interesting that that hasn't caught on in printed English. It, it again, would make newspapers and magazines and web pages much shorter. Um, right. But I noticed that with texting and email, English is losing its pronouns. So I will say, uh, wanted to let you know uh, in an email or uh, went to the store. And that would never be something I would have written in a in a letter uh, 25, 30 years ago, or and I wouldn't have generally, I don't know if I'd have spoken that way or not, but I see email affecting English pretty dramatically. Do you agree? And if so, what do you think of that? Well, I don't see email affecting the way we talk, but email certainly changes. You mentioned the exclamation points. I use them much more now than I did 20 years ago in emails because you want to convey a certain chipperness, a certain yep. engagement, a certain salutation, and just using email at all 20 years ago conveyed that. Now you need something extra. You and I might be using two exclamation points in another 20 years. And as far as the pronouns, partly that's economy. Partly that's because we've always spoken that way to an extent. And so you could say, well, it was a terrible party. I went there. I didn't have enough clothes. Never want to go there again. That's ordinary colloquial speech. And so that's just reflected in email. Hebrew is a different matter because languages where you have prefixes or suffixes that indicate what person and number you mean, mean that you need the full pronoun less. And so halachki means you don't need the ani. With English, you're just relying on context completely. And that's a different matter. And part of that is just the telegraphicness of rapid speech with as we always know, context. Language is always used within a context where it's pretty much always clear who the participants are and what their relationship with each other is, which means that often you can leave out the pronoun without destroying the logic, and therefore we do. Uh, Is Hebrew one of your 12 languages? I read it very well. I never have any reason to speak it. But you just tossed in in that halakhti, which means which means I went. Uh, so I thought that, that was lovely. Right. Uh, yeah. The T oh, is the, thank you. for non-Hebrew speakers, the T at the end of halakhti conveys first person. So you don't need to say ani halakhti, I went. That would be almost redundant. It's, uh, but as you point out, that's, uh, it is kind of, there's a pronoun built into the, into the verb. Exactly, um, right. Uh, let's talk about, we're almost out of time. Let's talk about language and what you, you you speak about it getting personal, and you use Black English as an example, and use other examples. What do you mean by getting personal, and how does Black English and other forms of language affect that? Do that, bring that about. Um, I use the getting personal within the context of what I call easing, which is one of the kinds of these pragmatic markers. And part of speaking a language is putting the other person 
at ease at all points. We're basically saying everything's okay. Everything's okay. One way that we do it is with the little giggles and chortles that are part of having a conversation with somebody, even when nothing is particularly funny. If you listen to ordinary conversation, the amount of meaningless joking and laughing can be bizarre. If you think about the fact that often nothing humorous is being discussed, we spontaneously are always putting one another at ease. And there are various ways that you can do it. One of them is if you speak some kind of language that's slightly different from the standard one, that's only used in your in-group. Chances are that you speak the standard language, but the in-group language is what you use to convey a familiar, comfortable tone. And so that's pretty much the only place that black English comes into words on the move in particular, where what I'm saying is that the way a lot of black people use the dialect is as an easer in the same way as you use those laughings that I talked about or in the same way as you would say, hey, you want a little bite? Even if the bite wasn't supposed to be that small. And so using black English or Appalachian English or a colloquial dialect of German or your local kind of Chinese instead of Mandarin, all over the world, people are using non-standard, but not non-coherent, non-standard language as an easing easing strategy. That's what I meant by that. Yeah, well, my, my parents grew up in Memphis, and my dad loves to throw in an ain't. A-I-N-T every once in a while, which drives me crazy. But that's – again, you're, you're helping me here, John. That that ain't is just his way of saying we're just kind of hanging out here, nothing special. I'm not trying to lord anything over you, and exactly. I'm going to drop the G, anything mm-hmm. over you. I'm not going to – I'm not going to uh, – I'm not going to speak the Queen's English because I don't want to feel like the Queen in your presence. It's a really deep insight about the dance of conversation. I just That's want a to, good way of putting it. Yeah. I just want to mention, you know, we, we talk uh, a lot here about Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments because it's a book I'm in love with and have written a book on, as, as listeners know. But a lot of that book is about our face-to-face interactions as opposed to our marketplace at a distance interactions. And your book really brings to light the way that our conversations uh, are so much more than just the words we use. Use an example that I use in my book also, which is how are you? How are you does not mean how are you in America. Uh, in, yeah. in Russia, uh, I, I've mentioned this story before, I think, but I, you know, I have a friend from Russia. When I say how are you, he says, fine, like all Americans – and that's because fine is my way of saying to you, I am listening, I'm alive, I understand you want to initiate a conversation by the phrase, how are you, rather than asking me how I'm doing. And that's just exactly. uh, an amazing thing. Yeah, that's how language works. There's often very much of a slip between the literal meaning and how we're actually using something. So, for example, many people these days, this is becoming the new literally don't like that a lot of people say, I feel that the economy, or I feel that we should actually have Japanese food tonight, as opposed to I think that. And the idea seems to be that if you say, I feel that something, 
It means that you're not really asserting yourself or that you think everything is all about you and your subjectivity. And people link that to various ideological currents of the past five minutes of American life. When really people were using feel in that way quite commonly way back in the Eisenhower era. And you can also find it as far back as early modern English. It's not really new. And when we say I feel, if anything, it's more politeness. There's a way that you say that something is your opinion without saying, here, I'm going to contravene what your opinion is, darn it. Instead, you say, I feel rather than I think, because it softens things. It's a kind of easing in its way. And so there's always that slippage between the dictionary meaning and how we're actually using the language, which frankly, I think is often more interesting than the dictionary solely in itself. My guest today has been John McWhorter. His book, is Words on the Move. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.